This is No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. Written by Valerie H. Hobbs. Read by the author. With original music by Jonathan and Caroline Hodges. Originally published in open access print form by Mayfly Books. Chapter 3 The central area of dominion is thus not politics nor economics, but the family under God. The family as a social organization is the prime area of dominion. It has far more than personal significance. R.J. Rushduni, Marriage and the Family, The Council of Chalcedon, 1989, Issue 7. All things considered, my home wasn't the best of homes, but neither was it the worst, that house that Dad built. We had rooms to sleep in, we had plenty to eat, we had books and toys, a tree house, the freedom to explore the creek and the woods around our house. We went weekly to the library, we visited the playground in the local park. We had well-meaning parents of that generation that emphasized tough love, independence, being seen and not heard, working within the system rather than calling attention to it. Keep your head down and get on with it. Don't make a fuss. In some ways, then, perhaps our home was somewhat typical. Still, we had some strangeness which sometimes I became painfully aware of when spending time with extended family or when out and about. There was always some distance there, some separation. I sensed this space from pursed lips, glances. There were things certain family members didn't say. Maybe our cousins had been instructed on how to interact with us. If they mentioned something about such and such, here are three neutral things you can say. In the summer, thanks to my grandmother's generosity, we shared a house with our extended family at the beach for a week, our family always occupying the furthest basement rooms, our father nearly always insisting we set off somewhere on our own some days, instead of joining in with the group. Sometimes he stayed home to work, and the rest of us went alone to reaffirm our blood connections. Too much time spent with others, especially with family. This seemed to unsettle my dad. Yet this perpetual gap that yawned between any one of us and any other person existed within the walls of our home as well. For years, my dad made us scrambled eggs in the morning. We ate thrifty meals around a kitchen table in the evenings. But as the years went by, we ate together less and less often didn't talk about anything much, didn't really know one another, like most people who carry the weight of untold stories. To open our mouths too widely or too often was to risk talking about something unmentionable, embarrassing. Better to avert our eyes, 
Go about our days and our duties with minimal contact. Keep conversation light. Keep it infrequent. We passed the time together, always busy with some task. Pulling weeds or house cleaning, pursuing some hobby, the frenzy of our hands using up every ounce of our energy, sapping all our focus. In the moments between, at breakfast for instance, we seemed incessantly to be searching for some text to hold our gaze, to disrupt any overly lengthy eye contact. A cereal box, a pamphlet, a book, a Christian newsletter. I read so many dull papers in those days, so many fundamentalist film and book reviews. In all this, our violence simmered passive-aggressively, always lurking just beneath a veneer of supreme outward mismanners politeness. We were opposing forces, living alongside one another in tension, the stresses within and between us building internally until, occasionally, they exploded unexpectedly. Here, a chair thrown across the room. There, a voice yelling. A household item rapidly repurposed as a paddle, leaving me and my siblings deeply insecure, mistrusted and mistrusting, generally tight-lipped. We maneuvered our everyday life like waterbugs, traversing the delicate viscosity of a murky pond's surface. In the early months of life in our country neighborhood, a little brown crossbreed dog called Smiley bit my stomach badly, and my father swore, something he didn't often do in our presence, and threatened to go round and shoot the dog with the shotgun he kept under his bed, though he cooled down and the gun stayed put. After that, we interacted very little with our neighbors apart from one boy, Michael, who came round nearly every day with his dog, Bear. Michael's dad took us hunting for squirrels and treated us to a fried chicken lunch at Pofolk's restaurant some Sundays. In winter, he pulled our sleds wildly around the neighborhood behind his truck when it snowed. He earned his money driving round all day collecting rent from his numerous tenants. My first encounter with the concept of landlord, an occupation we learned about by listening at doors. He was a tempestuous man, prone to outbursts and dramatic mood swings. He'd give Michael permission to go with us to the beach, to a theme park, to the city pool, then change his mind minutes before our departure. This was familiar territory, and dodging all his deceptive changes of direction kept me sharp for home life. With Michael, we practiced keeping our emotions in check, holding our faces straight as we rode the peaks and troughs of men's fragile moods. Michael had a younger stepsister, but we rarely saw her, and Michael had nothing good to say about his stepmother in the few times he spoke about her. At Christmas, she would send him over to deliver a tin of beautifully handmade cakes and candies. She can't cook anything else. She's really a terrible cook, Michael would say, if we kids made even the tiniest show of awe or gratitude as he handed it over. If it happened to be me at the door, I took the parcel from him silently, solemnly, in the same somber way, returning to Michael or to his mailbox, 
a handwritten thank you note from my mother. Instinctively, I deferred to Michael's lack of enthusiasm by mirroring it. We never heard anything of his biological mom, nothing I can remember now anyway. It was as if she'd never existed. Perhaps she was dead, or merely living nearby. Either or neither. We never knew. Michael, my brother, and I would often meet early in the morning and be gone all day, until Michael's father whistled to call him home. We could hear that sharp signal for miles. Wherever we were, Michael would start running. Bear, come on, boy, he said urgently. He often wrestled and sometimes punched Bear, for reasons I couldn't then grasp. The mutt was altogether loyal and bore his companion's beatings without complaint, receiving onto his furry flesh the punishment for whatever aggression that day, that week, had recently inflicted. Our home of mostly beige walls and carpet was nearly always tidy, systematically cleaned weekly from top to bottom, smelling of nothing. By then we had a yellow dog which my parents finally purchased from a local farmer after the dog stubbornly adopted us by escaping her fence at every chance and coming to find us kids. I'm not sure what she saw in us. What canine knowledge did she possess that pulled her to our animal unfriendly home? She was rarely allowed in the house, and especially not in the living room, though once my father said we could call her in for a family photo. Her whole body trembled then at his confusing violation of rules. I recall the picture now, my dad's hand round her neck, that unsettling flash of the whites of her eyes, glancing nervously to the side as dogs do when stressed. Occasionally I snuck her in to sleep under my bed, until her fleas established themselves in the carpet, and we were found out. When the temperature dipped below a certain level, she was allowed in the basement. One evening, my dad arrived home before the rest of us and tried to enter the house through the basement door, as he often did. His work equipment was stored there. Only the dog refused to let him pass. She growled and barked at him until the rest of us returned, then lay down, reassured, and went to sleep. My sister and I took her on long walks all around the surrounding streets, but most of her life she spent tied to a dog run between two trees, some distance from the house. There she'd purposely tangle her lead around one tree or the other, desperate for a visit, a pat, a kind word, the repetition of her name. Eventually she began to display signs of regret for placing her hopes in us escaping from our backyard, at every opportunity sniffing and searching the neighborhood for someone worthy of her devotion. We'd roam the neighborhood calling her name, carrying bread to tempt her home, hoping she was hungry enough to be enticed back again to us one more time. Growing up in this orderly, uneasy set of spaces, each of us began displaying signs of obsessive compulsiveness. My brother and sister developed a habit of placing one hand, palm up, under a ceiling fan pole, then giving it a slight bump towards the ceiling whenever either of them entered the room. For years, I never saw them move from one part of the house to another 
without performing this ritual. My sister and I became fixated on tidying our play kitchen just so after every game. In this way, all our play teetered anxiously on the horizon of the inevitable cleanup. The inclusion of each piece of plastic food we removed for our game was carefully calculated against the effort to replace it. Any mess seemed deeply out of place, unsettling. Once my sister set up all our stuffed toys for a game while I was at a friend's house, and upon seeing it, I berated her cruelly. I hadn't wanted to play, and now look at all this work. This has been No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. If you have appreciated this free audiobook and would like to make a donation to the author, please visit this podcast's Spotify site.